TED Audio Collective. Hey everyone, it's Manoush here. Before we get started, I want to thank our sponsor Cognizant for supporting this season of ZigZag. Later on in the episode, I speak to Ben Pring of Cognizant's Center for the Future of Work about the land of Remotopia. You've likely been living in Remotopia for the past few months, so you don't want to miss what Ben has to say. in the elevator. One of the last in-person interviews I did before the coronavirus was within walking distance from my home. Downtown Brooklyn, generic office building. Up on the 33rd floor is the office of a lawyer. She's not my lawyer, but you better believe that if you or I or anyone else ever has a stalker or gets harassed online... Carrie Goldberg will go to bat for us. Hi there, I'm Manoush. I'm here to see Carrie. This is Zigzag, the business podcast about being human. I'm Manoush Zamarodi. And it was particularly poignant taking that elevator to the 33rd floor of that generic building because from the conference room of her new office, you have the perfect view of the jail where Carrie Goldberg was held when an angry and dangerous ex-boyfriend had her arrested. I love that I'm like now looking down at the family court that told me I couldn't get this kind of order protection and the criminal court where I also, you know, was having to defend myself and, and the jail, like they're all like out my window. Let me read you a passage from Carrie's book. It's called Nobody's Victim. It's about that night. She writes, It happened a few weeks after I'd ended the relationship for good. I'd gone to the police to report that my ex was threatening and stalking me and that he'd tried to break into my apartment. Almost a month later, he was arrested, and I was called to the police station to identify him. That's him, I said, desperately wanting to get out of there. And as I gathered up my things to leave, another detective entered the room holding a manila folder. Matter-of-factly, he explained that my ex had made his own police report, accusing me of assault. And then he told me, you're under arrest. And here's what Carrie learned later, after she was put in jail. My ex had told them that I was part of a sex-for-favors scheme that involved my sleeping with judges in exchange for favorable outcomes from my cases— I explained that I worked for a nonprofit dealing with incapacitated elderly people, hardly the setting for a sex and corruption scandal. It took months and tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees before I finally got the bogus charges against me dropped. Believe it or not, Carrie's arrest that night, with police officers confiscating her phone, wallet, and bag— It was the start of her amazing story, of reinventing her career, becoming the lawyer that she really needed, and building a business that is protecting people and changing the law. This episode is sort of about the worst side of humanity, the icky reptilian underbelly, harassment, stalking, abuse— all of which can be amplified and distorted online and which our legal system has not caught up to. But this episode is also about justice. In fact, 
This whole season of the show is about some of the weirdest and most wonderful people out there who have managed to take truly ethically fraught issues from capitalism and diversity and gross manipulation of consumers and find a new way to combat them. To not just say these things are wrong, but to change their own companies and careers and offer an alternative. Align their personal ambitions with what is good for our fellow humans. And in lawyer Carrie Goldberg's case, survive to tell the story to us. My name is Carrie Goldberg. It's, oh, that sounded like a question. My name's Carrie Goldberg, and I'm the owner of victims' rights law firm C.A. Goldberg PLLC and the author of the book, Nobody's Victim, Fighting Psycho Stalkers, Pervs, and Trolls. When I first met you, you had just set up your own legal practice because you felt that there was a gap in the market to help mostly women deal with the uh, extraordinary things that can happen to them, um, largely in part because of the internet. Can you sort of explain? So in 2013, I was experiencing, uh, I I basically got an involuntary education into the world of cyber harassment, stalking, and revenge porn um, when I broke up with a guy I'd been dating for four months, and then he just did this like scorched earth retaliation. And when I went to the police, they told me to go to family court. When I went to family court and tried to get an order of protection that not only protected me from physical encounters with with this guy, but also would stop him from sharing my naked pictures, which he had, and um, making all these threats and, and filing false police reports, which he was doing. The judge told me that he had the First Amendment right to, to do these things. Free speech. Free speech. And I was like, free speech to like share my genitals with the world? That is nuts. Did you have a sense that this was, you were unusual in some way? Well, so we now see this all the time with our clients where they use the the court system against their victim. I knew that I wasn't alone, but I was so isolated as all my clients now express to me that they are because when you're the victim of sexual violence or domestic violence, it's really just you. The isolation is, I think, what is the most painful and scary and, and, and demoralizing. And so when I finally was on the other side of this hell, in this moment of, I don't know if bravery, I, I can't really <laughs> decide if it was like bravery or, or, or craziness, but I, I um, quit my super stable job at a nonprofit doing elder law and started the law firm with the whole goal of just serving people who are dealing with an abuser or a a psycho stalker. You talk about in the book um, a young woman named Vanessa who was one of your first clients and the realization that you came to that you wanted to provide services to anyone who possibly came to you. But there was a moment where you're like, oh, crap, I'm going to go broke here if I take any client that comes to me. Can you tell me how you actually supported yourself as you were building this business? They don't teach you business in law school. And I didn't know the first thing about running a business. I was I was basically taking one free case after the next, my first two years. And then I was getting some like part-time work for my former employer 
to pay the bills, but but it was a pretty like desolate and bleak um, existence where I was just like working day and night on cases and not getting paid because my clients couldn't afford to pay me. And then I realized when I got Vanessa's case, she was 13 when she came to me and she had been sexually assaulted outside of her school, her eighth grade in Brooklyn. And the guy who did it, who was also 13, he filmed it. And then the video went viral through Facebook Messenger. And then when the school found out, they brought her mom in, who barely spoke English, and said that her mom needed to keep Vanessa at home because her continued presence was was a distraction. And I mean, they they had no money to pay me, but... How did they find you? They found me through the Brooklyn Bar Association Legal Referral Network. The woman there, you know, contacted me and she's like, listen, I've got this kid who needs to get back into school. I don't know where to send her. And there is a video. There was a video involved. I was like, oh, okay. And then she came to my office the next day with her mom and her little one-year-old brother. And we just had this like five-hour meeting. And it complete that case completely changed my life and changed my business because you know, I had this like realization that at the rate I was going, like there was no no possibility my business would would be able to stay intact for the amount of time it would take to resolve her situation. Because I wanted to go after the school. You know, I wanted to file something with Title IX. So I, I was really torn when I when I took the case. I didn't know where else to send her, but I also was feeling guilty. Like she's been completely victimized by this student. She's been further victimized by the school administrators. And here I am taking this like super ambitious case and I'm going to betray her too, because I don't think my law firm's going to be still around in three years when, you know, by the time it it takes for for this case to get resolved. And then ultimately though, I, I kind of use that as a kick in the ass (laughs) to like learn how to run a business. (laughs) You tell the story about how you went to a conference um, for lawyers, and one of the speakers was saying, you lawyers who talk about like all the do-gooding that you have with your work and that you portray yourselves as martyrs, but at the end of the day, if you can't market and do accounting and bill for your services, you are not going to stay in business, so knock it off, yeah, basically. Yeah, that's totally, it was totally it. And he was like, you know, like, forget all this, like, poverty mindset. Like, if you're not making money f- for yourself, then you're no good to your clients. And it completely shifted everything. So what did you do? So I created a business plan and realized that I needed to start you know, like doing bookkeeping and like and setting financial goals and developing a you know profit loss charts and things. But I think the most important thing that I did was I hired people. Did you get a loan? Like how did you pay for that? No. I mean the thing with hiring people is that all you really need is enough money. You know, it, it sounds intense, like, oh my God, I'm hiring somebody who's gonna cost forty or fifty thousand dollars. But you don't need the forty or fifty thousand dollars to hire them. You need just you know, a couple months worth of their pay. Because, you know, if I have somebody else answering the phones and doing the intake and the filing and stuff, then I can go and do like the actual billable work. 
and go out and market and bring in new clients and do the like higher level stuff. And so immediately by scaling, it was paying for itself. You talk about, I mean, all kinds of clients that you have had. Some of them are like Vanessa. They are extremely poor. They cannot pay for your services. You also have had extremely high profile clients, like people who've gone up against Harvey Weinstein. Do you have a formula that you like to keep to, or does it just kind of ebb and flow and you kind of ride it or? It's, it's not a formula. I mean, I definitely have a pro bono habit. And, <laughs> and She's I, saying this with a big smirk on and grin on her face. I've ways to, um, to subsidize it. So I wrote a book. And so I got, I got like the book advance. And sometimes I give paid speeches. And of course, like the higher paying clients can offset the work we do for free. But the thing is that the most ambitious cases usually are the ones that you're doing pro bono, like our, our case against Grinder. Matthew Herrick says for months he couldn't go to the restaurant where he waited tables or his home without men he didn't know approaching him for sex or drugs. Herrick says his ex created impersonating profiles of him and arranged sex dates with more than 1,400 men. In court papers, Herrick said he filed 50 complaints with Grindr and the company never did anything. The lawsuit calls on Grindr to implement technology to stop this kind of harassment. Grindr did and we put in about a million dollars worth of free legal services on that case. But it's the most important case that I've done so far in terms of having the most reach because it really changed the conversation about the responsibility that big tech has to users. And we sued Grindr wanting, you know, just an order against them, demanding that they exclude our client's ex-boyfriend who was impersonating him. And they said, you know, they didn't have to because of the Communications Decency Act. But they also told us that they didn't have the technology to oh. exclude him. And Is that true? They said it's true. So we made this into a product liability case, mm. saying if you've developed a dating app for in-person encounters that relies on geolocating technology, and you haven't built into it a way to exclude the rapists, the predators, the stalkers who inevitably are going to use it, then you've released a dangerous product into the stream of commerce. And um, it was a way that we thought we would be able to bypass this kind of outrageous protection that tech companies have. And the court disagreed. There was recently testimony in front of Congress where this case is used as the example of this law being interpreted too extravagantly. So part of it for you with your business is like moving the cultural norms. That is what the bottom line is. And you can't put a price tag on that when it comes to the work that you're doing. Like it sounds as though you've, you're very clear on what your goal is with this company. Yeah. I mean, I, I have this law firm as sort of a, a vehicle for my creativity, but also my protest. And I love that. <laughs> and um, it's the most amazing part of owning my own business is that I can decide what cases to take. I can go down these legal theory rabbit holes and I don't have a boss telling me that that's, you know, insane or that's going to affect the bottom line. Because the other thing is that when you take on risky theories and cases, 
they're super newsworthy. And so um, not only do you have the potential to really change the law, change the conversation, but you also get a lot of free press. I save a lot of money by not having to advertise. Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> because, you know, it's like um, journalists will talk to me like, like you're talking yeah. to me or, you know, when I got like a, that 10-page profile in The New Yorker, it's like, but it was, you know, the result of, of doing all this interesting, um, risky. risky, creative work. And where there's risk, there's, there's great reward. There's also great failure. Just listening back to this interview, I am thinking about how now so many more people are having relationships online because of, obviously, the pandemic, and how Carrie's law firm is going to be busier than ever. All right, quick break, and then Carrie shares something she claims she has never said publicly before, how much money she wants to make. Since March, so many of us feel like we've been living on a new planet, a place experts are calling Remotopia. Remotopia, Remotopia, depending on how you pronounce it, yeah. This is Ben Pring. I'm the head of thought leadership and the director of Cognizant's Center for the Future of Work. Cognizant's a big technology consulting and services company. Even before the pandemic, Ben and his team at Cognizant were studying how people work remotely or live in remotopia. Remotopia is this notion that because of the cloud, because of smartphones, anybody can work anywhere now. And being remote, that for many people is a form of a utopia. You know, not having to go to the office, not having to commute, not having to get dressed up. All those things that lots of people are now experiencing for the first time, a lot of people are thinking, wow, this is fantastic. This is the way I want to work in the future. Before the pandemic, just over 3% of us were working remotely. But now, three out of four of us say that we'd like to continue working remotely at least half of the time once the pandemic is over. And uh, we think this is a big deal because for a lot of people, working at home was really just synonymous with shirking at home. I think what's happening now is this model, this kind of remotopia model is being legitimized and it's going to become much more normalized. There's not going to be a stigma attached to it. But of course, working remotely means rethinking how your life works. We talk about the transition from fried egg life to scrambled egg life. And Ooh, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> what I mean by that is that work and life used to be separated, like, like a fried egg, the yolk and the white. But now we live scrambled egg life. Everything's mashed up. You wake up in the morning and you're doing email in bed at 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. And then at 11 o'clock, you go for a run or you walk the dog. Ben says that to thrive in Remotopia, managers need to make a big cultural shift. You need to be clear about what's the measure of success or failure. We measure on output rather than input. The input measurement that's been traditionally measured is time served, you know, presentism, as it's called sometimes. So if somebody's 
producing the work, high quality work, doing what you need them to do, then I don't care whether they do it on Sunday morning at four o'clock a.m. I mean, it's irrelevant. So employees, working remotely means you need to get really good at managing your day. Ben is a fan of time boxing. I found this in my own work very, very beneficial. The notion of giving yourself a specific period of time to do something, and then at the end of that period of time, the work is what it is. That's going to be tough for you perfectionists. But working within specific windows of time is key to keeping burnout at bay. I think if you give yourself a specific window, you become more efficient. And then at the end of that window, you know, go for a run, walk the dog, go for a swim, do whatever it is you want in that scrambled egg life. You have to know yourself quite well, really, don't you, to work in Remotopia? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Learn more about Remotopia and how work is going to change for you and your team. Check out all the research at Cognizant's Center for the Future of Work. Go to cognizant.com slash futureofwork. C-O-G-N-I-Z-A-N-T dot com slash futureofwork. We're back. Lawyer Carrie Goldberg is the author of Nobody's Victim. She is a pioneer in a kind of new corner of the legal world, protecting people's cyber privacy and keeping them safe in the real world, too. I think the Internet has created just such a convenience and an amplifier and just a multiplying effect where, you know, I could say something here and, you know, if it gets enough likes and retweets and stuff, then it could, you know— some statement that I make about, you know, somebody being a pedophile or something could become global. And also it's a way that I I think as a society, we've just become so much less tolerant of feelings of frustration or heartbrokenness or anger. You know, we just, when we have our phones, you know, we don't have to wait. We don't have to soothe ourselves. We can launch, you know, a, a diatribe at somebody or, you know, take that anger and troll somebody else. I know personally, like, I'm, and I think I speak for a lot of us, like, I'm less able to sit with discomfort. I immediately want to, like, text a friend. Whereas, you know, 20 years ago, I think I I would have just been, like, you know, taking deep breaths and, and maybe binging on TV or something. As I was reading your book, I, it was just a story after story after story that I was like, oh, my God, what is wrong with people? What is wrong with people? What is wrong with people? And I, I mean, there's a lot of misogyny in your book. It's really, really upsetting. And I felt a little naive, to be honest. (sighs) Yeah. I think um, we all have something to hide. We all have secrets. And, you know, it's nothing new that we tell our trusted loved ones what they are. But now at times of breakups and, and heartache, secrets can be like a commodity that, mm. that can be more easily used against somebody because there is such access to, to publication for everybody. Most people can handle themselves in, in a breakup and recognize that we all are 
free humans and have the right to not be in a relationship with another person. But then, you know, what I'm dealing at our, my law firm with the, the fringes of humanity that, that can't. And so many of my cases, I'd say probably 60% of our cases involve the aftermath of a breakup where one party is retaliating. And it comes in a lot of different variations, you know, threats of violence, threats to share naked images, actually sharing naked images, publishing them on porn sites. But then there's also just, you know, far more creative ways that we see punishments play out with people making fake dating profiles or fake escort profiles and then sending individuals to to a person's home thinking that that she's a prostitute or uh, cases where somebody's impersonated and different anonymizing technology is used and the offender might um, call in bomb threats thinking of at least three other cases where where <laughs> you know like somebody is called in bomb threats to schools and to Jewish community centers all over the world there's like a playbook you know and that's how you actually divide the book into the different sort of archetypal bad actors, the psychos, stalkers, you actually call them assholes, trolls. Who am I missing? Pervs. Pervs, yes. I will never forget you, pervs. Um, (laughs) Yeah. The first time I interviewed you several years ago was um, about a sexting case, uh, two teens who had gotten in trouble with a school system. Mm-hmm. And here we are four years later, and we have a congresswoman who had a consensual relationship with a staffer, which was deemed unethical. And most people agree she should not have been having a relationship with anyone on her staff. But also the fact that she had naked pictures disseminated of her as well. And there's a debate going on, which is, I read this article, which was how they're coaching women to run for office. And there's two schools of thought. One is don't take the pictures ever, ever, ever. And then there are other people who are saying like, well, why do women have to be held to those standards to begin with? Why is it so unacceptable that women have private lives where they do these things and that they are chastised for them? Where do you fall? Mm-hmm. Like, where well, do you think we are with all that? And isn't it sad that it's only women yeah, who are getting, that's true. Who are getting this advice. You know, I think women's sexuality has always been weaponized against us, and it's always been a line of attack. So telling somebody not to take a naked picture in the first place, it's not fair. And, and it's not it's not perverted for somebody to do that. You know, like it's also kind of suggesting that we're okay with people denying consent because Anytime somebody's picture is, is being distributed without their consent, it's, you know, an issue of, of sexual consent. Yeah, I think that's part of the problem with some of this is that there's a cultural shift when it comes to expressing sexuality in a digital age, um, the consensual kind, and that sort of um, prudishness extends in some ways to the illegal kind, the non-consensual kind, in that they think, well, she shouldn't have been doing that to begin with. Yeah, exactly. You talk about how um, you learned it takes a certain confidence to turn a business around, that you have to believe you're entitled to success. 
but that that did not come easy for you. And like we hear people talk about imposter syndrome, like they feel like they don't belong somewhere. But can you talk about this idea of feeling entitled to success? It's hard. Um, And I think particularly like in a field where there is this kind of – competition of martyrdom and for solo practitioners who's worked the longest hours and has, you know, the most dire circumstances that they're working under. I mean, when I first started, I was like in a windowless office that was about, you know, five by seven feet. And I didn't dare to think big. I mean, I want, this is a little, I'm still like a little embarrassed to say this, but I want to get a billion dollars in I've never actually said this like on the air or like publicly at all, but I want to get a billion dollars in in recoveries for my clients over the life of my firm. And actually I have this like new case I'm plotting out and I'm like, that is much too conservative, Carrie, Um, because this new case is going to be, I think, a really big one. Um, But I, um, like, why am I nervous about saying that? Don't know. I I hear you. Because what if you don't, right? What if I don't? But, But it's also like, there are law, tons of law firms in New York City that have gotten a billion dollars in recoveries, and you go to their websites, and they're all listed and stuff. And why the hell shouldn't like this firm be one of those firms? And why the hell shouldn't my clients be the beneficiaries of humongous recoveries and settlements and judgments and verdicts? Which brings us back, actually, to the other sort of multi-billion-dollar platforms that you've started taking on. Was that a turning point for you as well? It is like a major confidence booster to take on really, really big adversaries. And you can represent a 13-year-old person whose family is on food stamps and has never ridden on an airplane. And you can take on like the city of New York, a multi-multi-billion dollar entity, or take on a $100 million dating app. And I think that was really a turning point recognizing that and and saying, oh, like actually all this stuff about the court system kind of being an equalizer, where for the cost of an index number, we opened these cases saying that our client was harmed and we got the other side like to the table. That was big. That is big. And so where do we stand now in terms of Silicon Valley's role in all, in, in its responsibility for creating platforms where behavior like this can happen so easily? So the federal law, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, is a real obstacle for all of us individuals to hold tech companies liable for the harms that they cause. And I know that like most of us are not going to wake up tomorrow and decide to sue Facebook. I mean, tempting. But like, <laughs> but the, the, the fact is that um, the, the pressure of being potentially liable to people for injuries that you cause is what keeps businesses from being complete assholes. And so we've seen that Facebook doesn't care about its users, that they let child pornography disseminate on its platforms, that they let our elections get hacked, that they let the genocide in Myanmar occur. Like, those are all indicators that, you know, these companies... In Facebook in particular, are completely arrogant and don't give a shit about their users and don't have to because they're protected by this law. And so the gravity of having these companies protected from liability is 
really life impacting, even if you or I are not going to sue Facebook tomorrow. Well, I might, but, oh, you might too. <laughs> <laughs> I'll but, let you, you know, go first. It's not, this, is, this, this isn't about, you know, being called a bitch on Twitter and then suing them. It's about there being no legal framework that these companies have to abide by. Like there's no other industry like that. And this industry is the most omniscient and omnipotent and wealthy in the history of the universe. And it's scary to me. I believe the next step is to be working with Congress to get them to amend the law so that there is some liability. There's a public interest part to your profession that um, it sounds like you take very seriously. Yeah. Well, and yes, we can say is for the public interest. I also just want my clients to have the right to sue. (laughs) I mean, because I see these as obstacles to a person's access to justice. And you say in your book, my goal is to make money for my clients. It doesn't fix things, but money, let's face it, does make it better because they can at least have a comfortable life. Yeah. It doesn't undo it, but I really truly believe in redistributing wealth. Like if somebody has been bad and caused you harm and has money and resources, they should pay you. They should not get to keep that money and live a luxurious life if you can't as the injured party. And especially in in cases like we deal with where somebody is being stalked and harassed or revenge porned or sexually assaulted, those are all intentional things. And so if there's an entity, the defendant or a school or, or clergy or something that can pay, then damn straight. They should. Did you ever get any pay from your stalker? No, I never sought it. There are not a lot of situations where stalkers have tons of money. So it can be um, not beneficial to the victim to be in court against somebody who's kind of psychotically obsessed with destroying them because it's scary. But also, at the end of the day, if you're suing for money and your adversary doesn't have any, then then you're just kind of spinning your wheels for nothing. So you need to be strategic. Okay? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the stalking was the worst thing that's ever happened to me. But also, starting the law firm was my way of dealing with it. Last question I have for you, because I want to leave it on a... On a you're, you're so... I, I feel so much energy when I'm around you in like um in a joyful way. <laughs> and there was one, there was one answer that you the you said that there's a question that people ask you. All <laughs> I know, the time. I know where you're going. You know with where this. I'm going? Yeah. And it made me laugh out loud when I read it in the book. Can you share that? Okay. So um so often when I'm giving a talk or on a panel or something, somebody in the audience asks, like, um, you know, what do you do for self-care? <laughs> Is this the question you were thinking? That's of? the one. And I, um, I, I get the question. I, I understand why, why it's interesting to ask that because we're all curious about, like, how people operate and, you know, what habits people have. Sure. And I've started challenging myself to just, like, say these rather than, like, be embarrassed about them. But my my three sort of self-help remedies are Wellbutrin, marathon running, and sex. <laughs> Done. There, I said it. 
Carrie Goldberg, you are a delight. And thank you for all the hard work you are doing on all our behalfs. Thank you so much, Manoush, for having me. Carrie's book is called Nobody's Victim. It is quite a devastating read, but I I also uh, would definitely recommend it. And I so admire her. I am going to keep following her career. Next week, a profile of someone who was actually suggested by several of you, dear listeners. Be careful of your own definitions of waste. If you can do that, you will start finding value where where you never expected it. Adam Minter comes from a long line, generations of recyclers, from rag pickers to junkyard owners. He is an expert on global recycling. And he's going to school us on how the secondhand economy works and how it could make our households, our companies, and of course our planet, more sustainable. Plus, you'll hear my sister and I talk about wish cycling. You've probably been doing it yourselves. It's not good. Until then, keep up with me by subscribing to the newsletter that I have been slowly, slowly building for years now. I pour my heart into it, but not too often because I know your inbox is busy enough. Please go to zigzagpod.com to sign up. Also, I haven't said this before on other episodes. I should have been saying it all along. Please come say hi on Twitter or Instagram. The handle is at zigzagpod. You can see the awesome illustrations that have been commissioned for each episode. Because it's not a podcast episode without original art. That's what I think anyway. And if you have been thinking about recording a voice memo for me about what the heck is going on, or not going on with your career or company in this upside down world, do it, do it right now. Just no judgment, just tell me a story, record it, send it to zigzag at stableg, S-T-A-B-L-E-G dot com. And thank you. Many thanks also to the team who made this episode possible. That includes David Herman, Maria Wartel, Dan DeZula, and Armin Zamarodi. Also to Jen Poyant. So much gratitude to my partners at TED for all their support, too. ZigZag is a member of the TED family of podcasts, and it comes from Stable Genius Productions. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and thank you so much for listening. So I am going to ask you a favor, which is kind of awkward, but these mics are extremely directional. So either hold it. Hold it like you're holding it. Yeah, not on the thing because that catches a lot of noise. Or you can whatever you prefer. Is this good? That's great.